It's the commons, our right of birth. And you who would enclose the land all around the earth. Our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain. You who sacrificed the public good for your private gain. With our sweat we built the railroads, built cities on these shores. Good afternoon and welcome to Corporations and Democracy, a program that explores issues of community democracy and what we the people are doing to create sustainable democratic alternatives to corporate control. From the Philo Studio, I'm your host, Linda McClure. Support for KZYX comes from our members and Word of Mouth Magazine, connecting visitors and locals alike to the local food culture of Mendocino County. The latest issue is out now and can be found at independent grocery stores, fine inns, hotels, and online. Subscribe, advertise, and discover what's happening in Mendocino County at wordofmouthmendo.com. The views expressed on this program are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the opinions of station staff, members, or board. Today we're doing the Corporations and Democracy annual show with Project Censored out of Sonoma State University. Our guest is Mickey Huff, director of Project Censored. So good afternoon, Mickey, and welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Thanks, Linda. It's an honor to be back on the program and uh, great to be on KZYX. Yeah, great. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Project Censored and when did it start and what's its mission? So uh, thanks for the opportunity. Greatly appreciate it. Um, Project Censored was founded at Sonoma State University in Northern California, Sonoma County, uh, 1976. Uh, Carl Jensen had a background in uh, journalism, advertising, went to uh, went and got degrees, advanced degrees later in life uh, in communications, sociology, and helped found the comms department, actually, at Sonoma State. And the genesis of this project was Jensen's questioning media coverage of the Watergate scandal um, and uh, Richard Nixon's re-election in 1972. He, um, ha- you know, having been someone that felt rather... Um, that he was rather savvy about news. Um, he was curious as to how um, he himself maybe missed alternative and independent publications talking about some of the problems and scandals with the Nixon administration. And he was curious as to why perhaps it took longer for the establishment press, like the Washington Post, for example, to kind of catch up. And that was the genesis of the project, that question, that what is being reported in the independent, local, or alternative media that's not covered in the corporate establishment press or in the big newspapers. And let's remember, too, Linda, back in the 1970s, we had the big three networks. We did not have cable yet. We did not have the Internet. Um, You had weeklies. You have alternative local independent papers. Um, But this is before Ben Bedikian even wrote Media Monopoly. This is before the mass consolidation of corporate media. And even then, Jensen noted that there was this gap between what some independent uh, publications would cover versus the establishment press. And curiously, within a decade after Jensen founded the project, that's when you're going to see some really seminal work in media studies. I mentioned Begdikian and Media Monopoly. Also, Herman and Chomsky's um, uh, classic work now um, on manufacturing consent, on the propaganda model of media. So in many ways, our founder at Project Sensory was a pioneer in critical media literacy, which wasn't itself even a term yet uh, going back to the 70s. And now 
um, while we were founded at Sonoma State, we're on some 20 campuses across the country and in several countries. Um, I myself am chair of journalism and co-chair of history at Diablo Valley College in the East Bay. Um, so we've actually grown and expanded our mission and our curriculum to report the news that doesn't make the news and analyze why. I know that your your latest book, Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2021, edited by you and Andy Lee Roth, uh, your uh, endorsements at the beginning of the book, you got Oliver Stone and, and Daniel Ellsberg and uh, uh, Chris Hedges, Howard Zinn, Ralph Nader, Walter Cronkite, that uh, you definitely, your project is... Um, national national um, priority or national level uh, acknowledgement. So tell us about yourself. Um, what path did you take to become director of this prestigious program? Well, that's um, that's an uh, that's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked. It actually goes back. I I was. Um, I was born and raised outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in a working-class family. Um, you know, grew up to be a musician, uh, studied history and philosophy in college, and was very active in the arts and against censorship. And I was very interested in the news at an early age because my parents had a lot of books around. Um, you know, my dad uh, was an avid reader. You know, worked at a power plant, uh, got out of the navy, but you know, was an avid reader. So we always had newspapers and magazines and Time Magazine, Life Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, encyclopedias. So I grew up in a really, you know, literate household in a lot of ways, even though my parents weren't college educated. Um, and, and I just grew up fascinated by the news and what would, I noticed at an early age the difference even between print media, print news, and what was on television and the sensationalist nature of the screen. Of course, later I would go on to study more about you know, media issues and, you know, read people like Neil Postman and others. Um, and I just really took an interest in it. And when I moved to California um, in, in 1999, you know, I realized that I wasn't far away from Sonoma State University. And I started to, uh, I started to follow around Peter Phillips, who was the second director of Project Censored. And um, I really wanted to work with him in some way. And Peter was really gracious enough to kind of take me on and mentor me, and I became the associate director of Project Censored uh, in 2008 or so, and then I eventually became director in 2010. But my interest in this, again, goes way back, and I'll never forget, even when I was um, just graduating college before grad school, I remember seeing a book at uh, Barnes & Noble it said censored, uh, you know, top censored stories from 1993, and it was the very first Project Censored book. Um, even though Carl Jensen put together an annual report that the weeklies picked up, Bruce Brugman, San Francisco Bay Guardian, and then the Ann Weeklies papers, and in fact, our stories now, our top 25 stories are once again, as we speak, Linda, they're all around the country in the weekly papers, so that tradition continues. But it was that book that jumped off the shelf at me, uh, all the way back in 1993, that spoke to me, and I said, "I need to know this Carl Jensen." And I need, to, and I, by the time I got out here and Peter took over, um, I found them. And uh, you know, the one thing I can say about the people that work with Project Censored, um, they're teachers uh, first and foremost, and they're givers, and they really care about public education in the public sphere, and they care about a free press. They care about integrity of information. 
Um, and I'm just very fortunate to have worked with these people and continue to. And Andy Lee Roth is no different. Andy and I have done almost a dozen, um, almost ten books together now. I've done a dozen of these censored books published by Seven Stories Press. And we continue to do that. You know, we really believe in public education, critical media literacy, public and community media. You know, like I mentioned, you know, we're, we're honored to have our Project Censored radio show air uh, at, at KZYX. Um, you know, we've been on the air 10 years out of KPFA. So we've really extended this. We've got several documentary films. And, um, you know, it's certainly a labor of love and, and a very passionate thing uh, that we have for, for media freedom. And we're really lucky to work with so many people across the country. Just this last book cycle, you mentioned our book, our new book, State yes. of the Free Press 2021. Uh-huh. We reviewed over stories. We had 308 college students, 32 professors from 19 college and universities participating in our campus affiliate program just this year. So that's a long way from Carl's one class back in Northern California in 1976. And, uh, we urge your listeners to go to projectcensored.org to see a list of our stories, all 1,025 of them going back to 1976. Yeah, it's a tremendous public service that you do, um, really important stuff. So um, how? what do you see the difference between corporate and independent journalism? What, what considerations oh. do corporate... Um, uh, corporate media, what do they have that public radio, independent journalism doesn't? Well, that's a great question, Linda, especially for your program. Um, you know, we've long talked about, you know, a lot of people talk about mainstream media, right? And at Project Censored, we've always gone back and we've always tried to be more descriptive about that. Because just because something is prevalent, right, or ubiquitous, doesn't necessarily it represents mainstream values, right? Right. And the corporate media, the corporate media is the ABC, NBC, CBS that we mentioned going back to the 70s. But then cable came on, CNN. And then the 90s, you had Fox News. And then the, the liberal analog to that and MSNBC. Um, and then, of course, we still have the major newspapers, right? Um, big ones at any rate, even though many of them have gone under over the years. Um, but we like to differentiate between these because corporate media have corporate agendas. They serve their owners, their advertisers. Uh, they share, they, 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 they benefit their shareholders, right? Um, and so the stories that corporate media tell tend to reflect a corporate sensibility, a pro-corporate view, if you will, of the world. Now, PBS and NPR that come out of the 60s, right, out of uh, the Lyndon Johnson administration, those were supposed to be a public alternative to networks or private media, but over the years, become more and more dependent upon corporate money, which they call underwriting. And they always like to pretend that there's some big firewall between the people that are sending in money and, um, you know, the way that things get reported. But as fairness and accuracy in reporting and Project Censored and many other media watchdog groups have shown over the years, um, there's also a corporate bias over its so-called public media because of the financing. Um, and later in the program, I'm sure you and I will get to talk about some things to do to bolster public journalism. Our number 10 story this year is actually about that, about how we need a truly uh, publicly funded press to the tune of billions of dollars, which is eminently doable in a country like the United States. Um, but we want to differentiate further, even between corporate and independent media, because independent media doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a bias. In fact, if you go back to the 20th century and look at great journalists like George Seldes, um, 
he said that the job of journalism isn't to be necessarily objective, right, or have a false balancing um, or make false equivalencies. The job of journalism is to ethically report about what's happening, transparently report it, and tell the public what's actually going on in government, in seats of power, right? Mm-hmm. And so in the alternative media outlets, Linda, as Andy and I write in our book, they tend to have different guiding principles that align more with our own at Project Censored and our nonprofit Media Freedom Foundation. We champion and promote the independent press because they really focus on investigative journalism, not sensationalism, not eyeballs to advertisers reporting, right? We also like to hold corporate media to account because they do fail to provide news coverage that adequately informs the public as community members, as global citizens. This is what KZYX does. This is what KPFA does. This is what truly independent community media does. They tell the public what's going on, and they hold those in, in power to account. We also promote critical media literacy education. We think good journalism actually teaches journalistic ethics at the same time. And, of course, we believe in a public awareness and trust in independent journalism, um, especially because those kinds of outlets seem to be more interested in social justice and less interested in performative wokeness in the corporate sphere. And so, in a nutshell, those are the things that we champion about independent press and the kinds of research that we do at Project Censored that is differentiated significantly from what we see as the corporate or establishment media. Well, let's stay on the topic of media and uh, some of the stories in your book that cover media. Uh, The sixth out of the 25 is Shadow Network of Conservative Outlets Emerges to Exploit Faith in Local News. So what, um, uh, just an idea, what, what did you find out in that? Okay, well, this is one of our validated independent news stories. And as I said, this past year, we researched over 300 independent news stories, and our judges, nearly 30 experts, professors, journalists, etc., work with us and, prof- and the professors in the program and the students uh, to help winnow down that list. And these stories are vetted, fact-checked repeatedly. They go through several rounds of voting. Um, Andy Roth and I don't just sit around at the you know, at the campfire and pick out our favorite stories. You don't have a, a dartboard dart board in the office. <laughs> right, Linda, right. Um, you know, this actually goes through a series of, um, you know, pretty detailed uh, vetting. At any rate, this story was researched by one of my students at Diablo Valley College, Troy Patton. Um, this, storage, this story was published in the Lansing State Journal in Michigan, also the Michigan Daily, so student journalism, and also the Columbia Journalism Review. This story is number six, Shadow Network of Conservative Outlets Emerges to Exploit Faith in Local News. Well, um, Columbia Journalism Review highlighted how a network of 450 websites were operated by five corporate organizations in about a dozen states. And what they do is they basically look like traditional news outlets, right, so that they can gain public trust. They co-opt language and structure of of news organizations and so on. They begin covering local topics and things. But while they're doing it, they insert um, a right-wing bias. They, they insert opinion. And look, by the way, Linda, I want to be very clear. There's nothing wrong with having opinionated journalism, right? We're not saying you can't have conservative media, liberal media, etc. What we're saying, however, is that when you have news organizations that are pretending to be objective observers, but they insert surreptitiously a bias, 
that's propaganda and what we call news abuse. And this network of outlets uh, that's being talked about in Michigan is a perfect example of how uh, these, how, how, how certain outlets can be created as fronts to appear as though they're uh, legitimate news organizations, but they're actually propaganda outlets peddling an agenda uh, from uh, whatever network is financing them, right? And so that's what this story gets at in a nutshell. And again, your listeners should go to projectcensor.org where they can actually read about these stories. They can read about the media analysis of where the stories were covered. And they can also link directly to the stellar independent reports that we are highlighting. So at Project Censored, we don't just talk about what the corporate media don't cover. We highlight what the independent press does. So we also kind of celebrate uh, the fact that we can have reporters telling us things that matter if only we remove many of the blockades that are erected by the corporate press. And you actually have a whole chapter uh, uh, about the virus in the news, the coronavirus in the news. Uh, what, oh, indeed. Yeah. What, how do you see that has been impacted, aside from people are listening to the news more than they used to? Well, it's interesting. And what we do at Project Center isn't just do the top listing. We also do this chapter on deja vu that Steve Masick and his student Zach McNana brought back on what's happened to previously censored stories. Right. We have a whole chapter on what we cover on junk food news, right? Sensationalist, nonsensical reporting. Uh, but we also have a news abuse chapter. And this year, Robin Anderson, an old friend of ours, of uh, the project from Fordham University, she writes for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting and, and others. She's a stellar media scholar. She did a chapter on news abuse, establishment media's war metaphors, and how they obscure injustice and block global healing. And a big part of that was the war metaphor about the virus, declaring war on the virus. And, and in the United States, we're, we're such a bellicose nation. We have to declare war on everything. We declare war on poverty. We declare on war on teenage sex. Um, now yeah, we're declaring war on a right? And, and she writes about how these pervasive metaphors and language um, really tell, it's really telling about who we are as a society and as a culture, and how the media is ever enwrapped uh, in these kind of war metaphors. And so that's another chapter. By the way, some of these chapters on media analysis are not on the website, and that's why it's great if people can support our nonprofit by getting the new book at projectcensored.org, our publisher at Seven Stories, another small independent publisher. But the top 25 stories are free online, and we do encourage your listeners to go to projectcensored.org to see more about the top stories. And I really recommend the book, too. It um, is just so well done and so much thought-provoking information. That's uh, Project Censored, State of the Free Press 2021. So, um, one of the stories, number 10, you, uh, it's regarding the need to revive journalism and, and with stimulus money, with government money, and public opinion. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, this is a story that I alluded to earlier, uh, Linda. And again, it's also a story that goes to the heart of what your show discusses the relationship of money, power, and politics between corporations and democracy. And in this story, Revive Journalism with a Stimulus Package and Public Option, uh, we've got Craig Aaron from the Free Press Network and also Columbia Journalism Review, along with media scholar Victor Picard, writing 
uh, for Jacobin and The Guardian. And uh, Picard's new book is called Democracy Without Journalism. Um, if your listeners are really interested in this topic and want to go deep into the weeds about how to fix our ailing journalism system, I cannot recommend Victor Picard's book more highly. And in this sense, both Aaron and Picard say, look, like many of the challenges we face, oh, by the way, this story was also researched by a student of mine at Seattle Valley College's, Veronica Vazquez, um, and I helped uh, evaluate this story. Um, you know, Picard and Aaron say that the solutions are right in front of us, but what we lack is political will. And much of that is because of the power of the corporate press and the telecom industry and so on. But what Aaron and Picard say is that, you know, look, our government regularly is doling out hundreds of billions of dollars to large corporations, including in the pandemic, $500 billion for the airline industry, um, you know, other industries. And what Aaron and Picard say is if we have this kind of, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out corporations instead of people, why don't we have $600 million to retain 25,000 newsroom jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what Picard... Um, what Picard and Aaron go on to say is with $30 billion, we could have a robust public media system, far better than PBS and NPR. But again, and even though some people say, well, that seems like a lot of money, and it is, a lot of other countries in the world, including in the West, right, they already subsidize media much, much more than in the United States. And oftentimes, media in foreign countries um, reflects more of a... Um, and it reflects more diverse viewpoints. It's more representative of the, of the people, the public, and the society in general. And uh, Aaron and Picard say that we could have a journalism in the United States that could devote more attention to, to social justice issues. That could, you know, to, that could talk more about what's going on in community centers and local communities. But we really need resources to do it, and that means often taking away resources from the military-industrial complex and major corporations. Like, who needs this, this, this money, these, this money that, that people like Tom Brady are getting or these major corporations are getting, while in the United States people have only gotten one $1,200 stimulus package? I mean, it's beyond ridiculous. Uh, and, and the fact that we don't subsidize the public press shows you that the political will of this country is not interested in a well-informed society. They're interested in a society that's propagandized by the corporate state so that we can maintain the duopoly of two-corporate-party system and also shut out independent and diverse views. And at Project Censored, one of our main missions is to basically upend that and reverse that kind of approach. Um, righteous mission. So this year, the issue of racism has really exploded out there. Um, the the catalyst, uh, George Floyd's killing, just set off a, a new wave of protest and awareness of the racial divide in this country. And a number of your stories are um, focused on racism, um, on issues around that. Uh, two of them talk about uh, the first one, indigenous uh, and murder, or missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, which is at a horrible rate. And again, we don't hear much about it. And then um, uh, the um, issues around uh, black 
women and uh, girls. So talk a little bit about about some of those things that you found and and find noteworthy. Sure. Uh, Linda, you just um, outlined story number one and story number seven in our book. Story number one is on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Uh, and the next one you mentioned was underreporting of missing and victimized black women and girls. So you certainly see um, an intersectional connection there between indigenous people, uh, people of women of color, girls of color, and a lack of attention in the corporate press about crimes committed against them. This goes back to Chomsky and Herman's propaganda model about who is newsworthy, newsworthy victims, who are news shapers, who are newsmakers. And in this case, newsworthy victims, women of color are not usually among them. And in fact, the Pointer Institute just noted that one of their, their main goals is to try to highlight a lack of coverage in these areas. And lo and behold, here comes Project Censored with some of our top stories highlighting exactly what the Pointer Institute says is missing, right? So we're on the same page there with Pointer. And in this case, um, the missing and murdered indigenous women, right, this story comes out of Yes Magazine. Um, And, in fact, our associate director, Andy Lee Roth, has a recent op-ed about media in Yes Magazine. I strongly encourage your listeners to check out Yes if they don't know about Yes Magazine, though I imagine your listeners likely do. Um, another report from Think Progress, and again, The Guardian, um, and Ms. Magazine. So this story got some attention in these outlets, and as far as the corporate press goes, um, you know, very, very little. There are reports in Canada, um, Time Magazine and Washington Post talk a little bit about this, but like most corporate outlets, they only do kind of like a drive-by. They mention it briefly, um, they talk about it as an issue, but they don't get down to the root of it, and they certainly don't cover it in a way that builds awareness uh, among their readership that drives them to action, like solid, um, true, a truly independent free press with the public interest can do and often does when it's working uh, at its best, quite frankly. So this story you know, really highlights um, the great pains that are being experienced in these communities of women of color, uh, particularly talks about the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, where nearly 80% of those cases of violence being committed against people uh, are, rare, are they're rarely solved. Um, I mean, this is an astounding figure, right? There's a 30% active missing persons cases report around some of those issues. So again, this is a pretty complicated story and hard to you know get into all the detail on air with you now. But I do urge listeners, please go to the website projectcensored.org, right on the front slider. You can link to the top 25 stories, and then you can link to each of the original stories that we're highlighting here. Um, One of my students, Katrina Tend, researched this at Diablo Valley College. Another student at Sonoma State University. Another at Frostburg State in Maryland helped contribute to this number one story this year. So once again, while we're highlighting the news that doesn't make the news and analyzing why, we're also teaching scores of people, literally hundreds of students across the country, how to be more critical consumers of media and the independent press. Story seven, Linda, that you highlighted is the underreporting and missing victimized black women and girls. And this is some coverage over at NBC and ABC, but very little um, compared to the Atlantic Black Star, Essence, um, and Elliot Cohen, a longtime contributor down in Florida, Indian River College. Steve Masick at North Central in Illinois contributed to this story. 
Uh, this is a story about how, again, BIPOC uh, folks don't don't seem to make the headlines. Um, they don't seem to uh, really garner the attention of the corporate media. The West Side Gazette reports, what's more alarming is that media coverage and legislation that missing black girls are getting seems to be lacking compared to missing white girls, right? So that's, that's the analysis here. And this goes back to a 10-year-old study, right, where U.S. media coverage of missing children found only 20% of reported stories focused on missing black children, despite their disappearances corresponding to a third of missing children. So, again, when we use intersectional analysis and when we have more of a lens of social justice, we really become more aware of what corporate media aren't covering, and then we become increasingly um, alert to why independent, the independent press is so significant for communities like this and to help us understand what's happening in areas where, where many people, you know, maybe people don't experience these things firsthand, and maybe you know, not everybody is a woman of color. So um, they don't understand sometimes what these, what these issues look like. But... If the, if, the, if the corporate press would report about these things, right, and if, if more ubiquitous platforms did include these stories, then we would have more vibrant social justice and civil rights movements in this country to address these kinds of challenges, rather than have people say, well, you know, that wasn't in the New York Times, so it must not be true. You know, the New York Times itself recently, Linda, and Andy Rothmore writes about this in our book, we write about this in our book, they actually said that in the fight against fake news, if you haven't heard of a source, it's probably not trustworthy. Well, the absurdity of that knows no bounds. If you look at the top 25 in our list, I'm sure there are sources that people haven't heard of. But all of these stories are fact-checked and vetted repeatedly. And by the way, not only have we verified the factual veracity of these stories, we've repeatedly called out the inaccuracy of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the establishment corporate media who actually lie with impunity on a relatively regular basis. So um, that doesn't mean that they don't do any good reporting at the Washington Post or the New York Times or CNN, for that matter. It just means that they've got some temerity and audacity to be blowing their whistle in such a way that just trapes all over the independent press. And so that's another reason why we called them out in this year's book, is that we're saying, look, just because you have a New York Times moniker that says that it's all the news that's fit to print, we like to say that the New York Times is all the news that fits the print, <laughs> meaning fits their pre-existing bias. <laughs> right. Well, certainly this year, um, I think people have had more time on their hands, so we've seen more people in the streets, um, and just the the raising awareness of the racial divide in the country between COVID and Black Lives Matter, I'm really encouraged um, by seemingly more people getting it, it coming to the front of their awareness that we have a systemic, and I know one of your other stories talk about colonialism for indigenous people and, and the, the suicides and, and impact on their lives, that I, I really feel like this point in time, as horrific as it's been, has given us an opportunity to take a real good look at ourselves and realize we have to make change. 
so um it's it's wonderful the the support and and actual factual information that that leads to people recognizing that they they need to find out more and and it's not as it's been um presented uh, there's more to it than that so um so the wealth gap uh corona has enabled some very wealthy people to get much more wealthy uh while millions of of Americans have dropped into poverty um can we talk a little bit about the stories in your book about the wealth gap um number 5 about inequity and the life and death um impact of inequities yeah we've got several stories this year um uh, inequity kills uh international plasma markets and how they um you know, how they thrive off of uh immigrants and people that are struggling uh we also of course look at incarceration and recidivism as, as part of these stories this year story 5 that you mentioned um talks about inequality and the gap between the richest and poorest Americans is the largest it's been in half a century um you know so we have stories here this is submitted by Ken Burrows longtime supporter at San Francisco State University and Peter Phillips our former director at Sonoma State We've got inequality.org, the World Socialist website, Truthout, all contributing to this, right? All contributing to the information about uh, how inequality really kills. Anthony DiMaggio, a political scientist, has written special pieces for us on our website about this. His new book is on inequality as well. So here we see that the Government Accountability Project, um, I'm sorry, the Government Accountability Office, my mistake, that's a different thing. Government Accountability Office is something different. The GAO report uh, wrote that poor Americans are almost twice as likely to die before reaching old age as their wealthy counterparts. Um, you know, so this goes on and on. Chicago Health Atlas has documented a nine-year gap between the life expectancy of Chicago's black and white residents. Um, a 2018 study in Chicago found a strong relationship between racial and economic segregation and premature mortality. Um, this isn't wanton speculation. These are solid social scientific studies that show how inequality kills. And it's a very serious issue in our society. It's the worst that it's been in half a century. And we, uh, we really um, want to herald the independent journalists and intrepid journalists that want to talk about this and tell this story. Because for the most part, the corporate media can't be bothered with these kind of stories. Uh, the, the school to prison pipeline, another kind of thing that we've covered for years. Um, another story uh, on that in the book this year. You know, Linda, earlier this summer, we actually published a special e-reader online for free on Project Censored's report on policing and prisons. A uh, 50-page reader on a history of censored stories, alternatives to, po- to policing, community policing, what it means to, quote, defund the police. Um, so, again, we've been writing about these issues for years, um, and there's a great connection between class, between race, between gender, uh, the intersectional analysis that the corporate media often leave out. Those are the kind of things the independent press fills in the gaps on, and those are the things that Project Censored that we want to cover. 
Okay, this is Corporations and Democracy. We're talking today with uh, Mickey Huff, who is director of Project Censored. Uh, and so you ha- uh, have a, a solution kind of, um, uh, or dresses a, a solution in the 22nd uh, uh, story, the emergency wealth tax that the idea that, that multi-billionaires don't pay taxes and the rest of us do <laughs> out of our meager, uh, what we have that, that we do is obscene. And I, I know since Reagan's era, where he changed his tax structure, then then it's continued to the wealthy pay less and less. The division of wealth becomes greater, and the multitude of us are are left picking up the the tab. Um, so, talk a little bit about uh, a solution, an emergency wealth tax. Yeah, Linda, I'm glad you mentioned the word solutions, because a lot of folks every year when they see the Project Censored list, uh, they say, wow, this is so heavy, and some of these stories are just hard to handle, and they're very, and some of the things that you and I have been talking about, um, a couple of the topics that we address are certainly very challenging, um, but we also talk a lot about solutions and things that, you know, are really uh, in the public interest that the corporate media also either don't cover or distort. Uh, this story researched uh, coming out of San Francisco State with Ken Burroughs, um, an article in The Guardian and Truth Out, um, talk about emergency wealth tax to confront the coronavirus pandemic. So, you know, as you know, Linda, and as your listeners to this program likely know, between March and May of earlier this year, more than 36 million U.S. workers lost their jobs. You know, some countries have subsidized their workers, their jobless uh, former workers, mm-hmm. uh, between 70 and 100%. In the U.S., we've got one stimulus package that went 1200 bucks to people, and now another maybe 600 while hundreds of billions of dollars have gone to corporations. So while, while record numbers of Americans are losing their jobs during the pandemic, U.S. billionaires increased their worth by over $360 billion. That's 12.5%. Um, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, uh, Eric Wan, Zoom. Um, Steve Ballmer, Microsoft, Silicon Valley folks, Elon Musk, they're pocketing money hand over fist while regular Americans suffer. Uh, people can't pay their rent, their mortgages. So this, these stories, Linda, they talk about what needs to be done. There needs to be a wealth tax. There needs to be a way to raise money so that we can help have a social safety net. The Institute for Policy Studies, um, they recommended an establishment of what they call a pandemic profit, what they called pandemic profiteering oversight committee, right, where they would have people reviewing this and saying, look, what do we need to do? What kind of things should we do? They proposed an emergency 10% surtax on taxpayers with incomes of more than $2 million, and that's the 0.2% of Americans, right? Mm-hmm. And they say that could raise 600-some billion dollars. So there's ways that we can raise money to help pay for things. But over at the New York Times, the Washington Post, ABC, they just talk about how we don't need to do anything and why do we want to raise taxes. It's a mantra back to Reagan. I'm glad you reminded everybody of Ronald Reagan because that's really where a lot of this stuff started 
in earnest with this trickle-down nonsense. And the corporate media love it, right? They never call this out. They're always just saying that, well, you know, we can't have socialism. Then, Linda, why can we have socialism for the corporations? Why can we have socialism for the 1% and paltry capitalism for the 99%, right, the language of Occupy? And, again, we need these independent uh, stories to remind us how biased the corporate press is and to remind us what we, the people, actually deserve in a just society. Another of your stories that is a solution that I'm very excited about is uh, public banking that I know our governor, um, uh, or our legislature passed a bill, the state, uh, to allow or to pave the way for counties and cities to uh, have public bank. Uh, Mendocino County had a, a ballot initiative. Oh, gosh, it's been eight eight years or so ago. Uh, establishing a committee that could then develop a public bank. I think the public bank movement is one of the most exciting financial solutions out there. Uh, So can you touch on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And certainly listeners to this program, uh, like we are no strangers to this topic, uh, the public banking revolution is upon us, writes Ellen Brown for Common Dreams. Ellen Brown uh, has run for public office in California on the state level, co- um, the founder of the Public Banking Institute. Right. Yeah, this story was also up, right? Yes, absolutely. Ellen Brown, great work um, that she has done. Also, Yes Magazine covered, did several stories on this, as did The Hill. Um, look, public banking is the opposite of corporate banking. Instead of taking money out of communities, it puts money back in. Right? It's a no-brainer, right? One of the best examples of this is the North Dakota, uh, is, right, is the Bank of North Dakota, established over 100 years ago, that provides a robust alternative to big for-profit banks. Um, and so um, California enacted a public banking act. L.A., San Francisco, um, New Jersey is getting in on the act. You know, this is a way to divest public employee pension funds from the big banks, from the fossil fuel industry, from, you know, this, this is something that we need to do. We need to invest in the public sector, not the private sector, and this is what public banks can do. You know, in California, one of the ways, Linda, that we can most see public banks coming in is in, it would be in a, as a way to help the burgeoning marijuana industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there, there yes. Because of the federal way that these laws have been, been written, uh, that, that, they're, they're they have to operate outside uh, of this of the banking structure. We need public banking to support local communities, right? Not unlike some credit unions, but even larger on the state level, where money is not. Again, I have to repeat this: money is not siphoned out of communities and reallocated upwards. It actually goes back into the community and works in the public interest at the local grassroots level. So again, another solution story, this one number eight in Censored 2021. Right, yeah, that's very exciting. And as far as the corporate rules, um, uh, what, uh, your stories number 14 and 19, uh, the antibiotic abuse and profiteering, uh, we know that some corporations have just profited tremendously during this pandemic and the pharmaceuticals 
um, I mean, the whole virus, uh, the vaccination, and who's making it, and how available it's going to be, and hoarding by uh, rich countries at the expense of poor countries. So uh, talk about pharmaceuticals a bit, Mickey. Absolutely. These stories are from Truth Out, Mint Press News, Public Citizen, um, Dean Baker, a great economist, writes about this. Um, look, we've been writing about this theme for years, the case for a public pharmaceutical system, right? Because of the wanton abuse of big pharma, because of the wanton profiteering, because of uh, their corruption of captured regulatory agencies that have helped cause uh, you know, mass death in and of itself outside of the pandemic, right? Like Purdue Pharma and OxyContin. Yes. What this this looks at is what does a public pharmaceutical system look like? Fran Quigley writes about this in Common Dreams, right? Um, The democracy collective model, as they call it, includes, quote, plans for a national public pharmaceutical research and development institute for developing new drugs, to meet public health needs, state, local, and regional public pharmaceutical manufacturers, regionally owned, operated public wholesale distributors that engage the U.S. Postal Service to partner for distribution. Right? We don't need the military. We don't need private, for-profit, big pharma sectors that aren't transparent, that are proprietary, so we don't always know the safety or efficacy of the products they're literally pushing on the public, right? Mm-hmm. And so having publicly is a a better way to make sure that we have safe pharmaceutical products, right? And that's a really, really important issue because, Linda, you mentioned another story, number 19, and this is another story we've covered over and over on antibiotic abuse. Pharmaceutical companies have been profiteering by accelerated superbugs because of overprescription of antibiotics for years and years and years. Superbugs kill 60,000, nearly 60,000 babies every year. Where's the outrage about that, right? Mm-hmm. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism about that. Uh, and in India, uh, you know, you'll see all, if you go around the world, um, you know, you'll see different systems offering different solutions. But this is a problem that's proliferated around the world. And we really, this is another reason why we need to rein in Big Pharma so that it can potentially operate transparently, not-for-profit, and in the public interest. That's the key phrase here. So once again, um, you know, we have solutions at our hand. Uh, we just have to make sure that profit isn't the only motive uh, in our society. And again, that's the main theme of your program. And once again, here at Project Censored, we've this year been covering those kinds of stories. Why? Well, because the corporate media are less likely to talk about these kinds of stories. You know, the only substantial reporting from the corporate media on the unethical sale of antibiotics was an excellent report, by the way, by the New York Times going back to 2016, right? But but our point is this. These stories are important every year, not just once in a while, not just a flash in the pan. Thank you, New York Times, for your exhaustive investigation. But meanwhile, 58,000 kids are still dying. So, you know, we need to keep up on these things, and that's what the independent free press does for us and with us. It helps keep us informed about the key issues of the day that matter from the local to the global. 
So the other big thing that seems to be uh, hitting us this year, although it's always been with us for for probably forever, is police misconduct, police violence, and the defund the police, or I like to think of it more as a reallocate funding. Um, because we, there is a place for, for police. There is a need for that, but it's not to respond to mental health issue calls or, um, there's many better ways we can deal with, um, problems in the, in the communities. So uh, you have, uh, several stories on police misconduct and, uh, one of them talks about environmental activists, a crackdown on them. Uh, you want to touch on that? Yeah, thanks, Linda. And, and just a reminder, um, our, uh, over the summer, Andy Ross and I put together a, a reader for free, so if your listeners are interested, they can find it. It's Project Censored on Policing in Prisons, and it's a 50-page collection of censored stories on police and prisons, including alternatives to policing. I like how you talk about, you know, kind of like refunding <laughs> the police, uh, not necessarily defunding. Um, and as uh, former President Barack Obama just chastised activists for that language, I asked President Obama, where were you for eight years when activists and scholars stormed the White House asking you to do something about uh, injustices in communities at the hands of police? When people were scholarly asking you and asking you to help them, you turned a blind eye and a deaf ear. So whenever people radicalize and take to the streets, Barack Obama, you have yourself to thank for not responding. Let's not forget that during the era of the first black president, we had the biggest African-American-based civil rights movement since the 60s, and Black Lives Matter. That's because the Obama administration continued many of the policies of the carceral state. And so while we talk about these issues, Linda, it's important that we talk about what we mean. Now, there are some more radical groups that talk about abolishing the police altogether, but defunding the police means reallocating funds to different social services. Here's why. One of the reasons is because some police are not helping our communities at all. Story number 11 this year is on the new Green Scare, law enforcement crackdown on environmental activism. Um, you know, as scientists can, uh, keep warning us of imminent climate crisis, environmental activists are turning up the heat on governments to do something about it. Well, as history has shown us, right, going all the way back to the 19th century, Anytime people start clamoring for corporations to rein it in and stop polluting, they start getting out the Pinkertons or the police to come bash skulls or to infiltrate movements, you know, going back to the 60s and COINTELPRO and so on. So here we have a couple of stories uh, going back where state laws are being written by the American Legislative Exchange Council. Uh, really, you know, these are funded by fossil fuel people like the Koch brothers, right? They're trying to get state legislatures to push police into communities to crack down on environmental activism. This story was in the Progressive magazine, um, and it talks about how the Trump administration's corporate-friendly policies have endangered the health of the environment, of, of course, but they also talk about the FBI and pro-fossil fuel politicians, like Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe, who have identified environmental activism as what they call a terrorist threat. So let that sink in. Environmental activists are being equated with terrorists. We saw this earlier with something called the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. So this is not new. This is, however, an expansion of critical infrastructure laws that would make people protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline 
terrorists, okay? Now, let's remember that there were over 800 criminal cases associated with that involving activists, not involving the corporations destroying the earth and running wantonly over native lands, but for people who actually protested it. So I'm afraid that this issue is still with us, Linda, and um, this is a way that the police can abuse their power against the public interest to protect private profits. And the uh, 12th story is about hate group involvement with the police. Well, I'm afraid that this isn't new either. Uh, For years, uh, we've been talking about the police being infiltrated by white supremacist groups, uh, race, race, racist groups, etc. Um, you know, this uh, there's an article in The Verge, hundreds of active and former police officers part of extremist Facebook groups. Uh, another article in Reveal News and, and uh, Read Sludge. Um, this article researched over at Sonoma State University. Reveal, at the Center for Investigative Reporting, said hundreds of police officers are members of misogynistic, homophobic, racist, anti-Muslim, Confederate or anti-government militia groups in social media. And there's been a direct collection here, I'm sorry, a direct, I'm sorry, connection, sorry, between these groups. And so we actually need to be careful at, you know, who becomes a police officer. How are they educated? What is their background? Do they have implicit bias training? Um, are they are they educated in social justice issues? Um Are they educated in best practices? Well, what we're finding is, is not only is there not enough of that kind of training going into community police, but what we're seeing is that there are an increased number of people. In fact, NBC actually did report this, so there was some corporate coverage here, not much. But they reported 13 police officers would be removed uh, from Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Police Department, because they had violent, homophobic, racist posts on, on Facebook. Now, look, that's a drop in the bucket, right? These 13 officers in Philadelphia in 2019 were considered the worst of over 300 people being investigated. But what these independent reports show is that this is this is more of an epidemic of sorts. There is a certain number of people in almost all of our local police forces that lean this way or have tendencies this way. Does this mean all police are racist? Of course not. Of course not. But structurally, we do have to look at what is driving police behavior. What are, what, what are the structural systems that push police, and what are the laws that allow police to do the things they do, right? And so we need journalism that doesn't just come out and attack police, right? We need constructive coverage of different ways that community policing can work and alternatives to policing. And, you know, last year, Linda, one of our stories was on alternative policing, and it was part of our free e-reader that we put out this summer. So once again, Project Censored, not just pointing out the problems or the challenges, but also pointing to independent journalism uh, where people really are working to change our systems to have a more just and equitable system of policing. Well, Nikki, I wish we had another hour to cover the breadth of the stories that you have. We just have touched on some of them. I highly recommend Project Censor's State of the Free Press 2021, by uh, edited by by Mickey Huff, the director, who is our guest today, and Andy Lee Roth. So um, thank you so much for your work and uh, what your contribution 
solution to raising the awareness and understanding with the with people out there. Well, Linda, you know, thanks to you, your incredible show with your co-hosts and KZYX Project Censored Show. We, we're we're honored to be on air with you all there. And uh, again, a big shout out to all of our friends in Mendocino County, and we all wish you uh, a better. Uh, healthy uh, 2021. Great. Thanks so much. Mickey Huff, Director of Project Sanctuary. I'm sorry, not, there's a Project Sanctuary in our county uh, of Project Censored. Um, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much. So this is my last show. I'm retiring from KZYX programming um, after a number of years, but uh, not from my strong commitment to our jewel of a radio station. I'll answer phones during pledge drive and make my monthly automatic deduction to give financial support, and I'm going to encourage you to do the same. It's a painless way to keep this station going and providing us with all the multifaceted entertainment, analytical coverage, of world affairs and critical local public service. I have truly been honored to participate in KZYX as a programmer. Steve Scalmanini and Annie Esposito will continue their excellent Corporations and Democracy show on the second Thursdays of the month at 3. Our exceptional program director, Alicia Bales, has some new local programming in the works for this fourth Thursday time slot. So tune in January 28th for something new. I want to thank all the staff here at the station for their commitment and expertise. Rich and Eddie's tech help has been invaluable. We are truly fortunate to have each and every one of the people working here. Mostly, I want to thank you, the listeners of Corporation and Democracy and KZYX. Without you and your support, there would be no station. So this is Linda McClure wishing you joy, health, and blessings in a new year that I trust will be better than the one we've just been through. Bye now. First you told us only through you could we know God And if we dared to question He wouldn't spare the rod For you we worked the soil For you we dug the moors For you we shed our blood And fought so many pointless wars Now you're trying to tell us There's nothing we can do You say the world around us Belongs fairly to the few But about six billion